This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer, at a time. My interview today is with Jacinda Townsend, author of the novel Mother Country. What if you stole a kid? How long would it take you to feel like that kid's mother? We'll be back with Jacinda Townsend after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. 
I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is novelist Jacinda Townsend. Her books include the newly released Mother Country and Saint Monkey, which won the Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize and the James Fenimore Cooper Prize. She is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and teaches in the MFA program at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Her novel Mother Country tells the story of Shannon, an African-American woman who follows her boyfriend to Morocco in search of relief from a recent car accident, mounting debt, and a general lack of direction in her life. On a return trip to the same country where Shannon is now married, on the streets of Marrakesh, she finds a young toddler who she assumes is motherless. With the help of her husband, she brings the young girl home to America as her adopted daughter. At the same time, Surya, the toddler's mother, who was once a Mauritanian slave, is desperate and nearly despondent at the disappearance of her daughter. Mother Country weaves the stories of these two women together and investigates issue of love, grief, motherhood, loyalty, and trauma. We began the discussion with Jacinda Townsend sharing the origins of this novel. Mother Country is told in two different voices, um, and it's basically the, the braiding and interweaving of two people's stories um and both of these people's stories intersect at this horrific point in which the american woman kidnaps the mauritanian woman's child but the mauritanian woman's story came to me because i was researching modern day slavery in mauritania um and in 2013 I was in Morocco for the summer and I took a side trip to Mauritania to write a story for Al Jazeera about women in development. So the woman I was writing about was an anti-slavery activist um, and she helps head this organization called SOS Esclaves. She introduced me to a family of escaped slaves and it was probably the most powerful travel experience of my life. Um, Definitely one of the most powerful encounters of my life. I met this woman. I spoke to her through translator because I speak French, but she was speaking Hassania. And what she told me was just just harrowing. Um, She and her eight children had been slaves in the desert. And that work is so hard. Um, the The children were actually herding camels, which means they were, you know, <laughs> running over sand dunes, herding over vast, vast distances. And and the weather in the Sahara is brutal. You know, um, I mean, I had to wrap up so I wouldn't get burned all over my face within ten minutes. So, it it's a brutal, brutal life. All of her children were different colors because basically her master had leased her out as a prostitute. So she had been rescued by her brother who had also escaped slavery years earlier. He had gone through this incredible journey to find her. 
and she gave birth to her eighth child on her way out of the desert. So I got to hold this baby who was, you know, the first baby in that family born out of slavery, basically. And, you know, I got to feel the power of this, um, just this beautiful aura of like, you know, what happens when a family finally escapes slavery? And, you know, that's a feeling people have felt throughout history. Um, But Americans don't generally get to be close to that feeling. And so it was amazing to hold this baby. Um, they were living in a tent on the edge of the capital city, Newark shot. And one of the kids was just clearly really sick. And I sort of like, you know, violated journalist ethics. And I just gave her money because I felt really bad. And I said, you know, what, what can I most do for you? And she said, just tell my story. So the Mauritanian woman in another country, Saria, is in some ways a composite of a lot of the terrible stories I heard about Mauritanian slavery. So that, that's how her story came to be. The other part of the book is quite personal in that before I even thought about having children, before I was even married to my ex-husband even, I went to um, a, a commune. Um, they now call them intentional communities, but this was a commune that had been around since 1968, and it's called The Farm, and I met the daughter-in-law of Ida Mae Gaskins, who's the mother of modern midwifery, and she kind of got me hooked into the whole cosmology of what I now call the natural birth industry, <laughs> um, and I thought that when I had kids you know, it had to be this beautiful water birth and like Bambi had to come out of the forest and talk to me. And, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy how we wrap ourselves up in these like cosmologies about birth, but I had, neither of my kids were born that way. They were both C-sections. One of them was an emergency C-section. And for a long time, I just felt like I wasn't their real mother, you know, that I had failed at the critical moment and like, how was I ever going to parent properly from here on in? And it took me years, like literal years to kind of overcome that. And I thought, well, you know, what if the circumstances, if you're coming by a child, like, let's take this out to the nth degree. What if you stole a kid? How long would it take you to feel like that kid's mother, you know? And um, and that became sort of the backbone of the American woman's story in the novel. And, um, and it was really healing to write that. I think in writing it, I finally accepted that no, you know, I, I was their mother, like no matter what biologically had happened or, or had, that wasn't determinant at all. Um, so it was a really healing process to write this novel. What does that healing look like for you as an artist? Meaning, I don't think that you in, intentionally go in to write to heal, but how does that happen? That's a, such a good question because I am a huge believer in not not writing top down. In other words, I do not come at my work saying, I'm going to write about this. Like I'm going to write about the process of becoming a mother or, you know, with my last novel, it was like, I didn't go into it thinking I'm going to write about the destiny that your parents give you and force upon you. You know, I kind of let my characters do whatever they're going to do. I spend my first draft 
just kind of writing character. And usually I get about like an embarrassingly long way in before I find out really what the plot is and what the novel's about. And both with both novels, it wasn't until I got to the end of that first draft that I was like, well, you know, with the first novel, I was like, oh, this is about my dad. Like, this is about my relationship with my dad. And it wasn't really until I got to the end of this mother country and with the first draft that I realized I had written about that process of becoming a mother, but it was there in my subconscious all along, you know? Um, and so on, on the second draft, I went back and I knew that that was in a lot of ways, the dramatic question. And so I kind of front ended it with, um, the fact that this is a, the American woman is actually struggling with infertility and that people have made this a huge deal for her, you know, that like she has to have this baby. Um, and so she goes and she steals one because what else are you going to do? <laughs> it, it looks very easy, you know. Is there something specifically about Mauritania than other countries that drew you there? I mean, I don't know much about slavery now in other African countries, but why that one? So there, it actually sadly is endemic to a lot of countries, Saharan African countries, you know, like Mali. Mali is where I first learned that there were slaves. I was in Timbuktu and somebody said to me, like, look at those slaves over there. I was like, what? There are, what? You know, I had no idea. Mauritania, though, is, so Mauritania is a really isolated country. To give you an idea, I was there in 2013. There was one ATM machine. It wasn't working. To go to the bank, I had to have my dad wire me money, but I had to be chaperoned because I was a woman. Um, I had been the only woman in the whole airport. The airport was full of people. I was the only woman in the airport. Um, the roads are not, the roads are all made of sand. Like they're not paved. I mean, just a really isolated country. There's one television station and it is state owned. I want to say the number of radio stations there are like, you could count them on both hands, you know, because it's so isolated and because it is so underdeveloped, slavery has just flourished there the way it always has. Um, they didn't outlaw slavery until 2008. They have prosecuted um, just only a handful of people, you know, even when, when the evidence is overwhelmingly there, the slave owners are not prosecuted. So that means that 20% of the population of that country is enslaved, you know, as it is in a lot of countries, but, but it's kind of more pronounced there. It's, kind of brutally enforced um it's a it's a system of slavery that's enforced according to caste which makes it very hard to escape because if you do escape slavery you you don't have a job because you you're born into your profession you're you're a car mechanic because your dad went you know and so Mauritania's form of slavery is a particularly sort of brutal and stubborn one People don't know about it because the Mauritanian government has kept it very quiet. Um, one of the hosts that I had in 2013, he was um, with a different 
anti-slavery organization who's actually imprisoned shortly after I left. And that's a, you know, that's a common thing that happens is that these activists are just thrown in prison over and over and over again. So it's, um, that's why I chose Mauritania. You know, it also, um, because, because I'm a desert rat, um, it was a country that I had always wanted to visit and, and it was hard. I tried to go. And when I was doing my Fulbright, this was in 2001 and I couldn't get a visa. So I, I actually, when I went in 2013, went on a tourist visa and I can't remember what I said I was going to do, but that's not what I did. (laughs) Obviously. Well, that is so much pain to hold too that the that part of the story I mean you were talking about healing from your own childbirth story did anything take place any movement take place inside of you and I'm not aiming towards healing but just maybe it was understanding or how you held all that because that's really tough Yeah, I can speak to both things. As I was writing the novel, my children were getting older and I was coming to this understanding about all the things I was doing for them that had nothing to do with the moment I gave birth to them. And and that was what made me a mother, you know, that um, one of my children I've had to advocate a lot for in school. And that's what made me a mother, you know, and so... As I was writing this character who kind of, she's very different from me. <laughs> you know, she's incredibly different from me. Um, but as I was writing this character who herself was coming to grips with the fact that like suddenly she had a child in her kitchen. I thought, you know, in a lot of ways, it's this is the same thing that that I am doing. Like suddenly there were children, there were babies, they were infants, they were in my kitchen, they were in my hands. And and it's it's like to be a mother is not it is a noun, but it's very much a verb, you know, and that's what made me a mother, just as that's what made Shannon the character in the book a mother as well. So I think that was my healing process is just realizing that like, no, you know, there are all these affirmative actions that have nothing to do with your body and what your body did one day. Right. And, um, and with the slavery thing, I just, I had her voice in my head that whole time, just tell my story, just tell my story. And it was so, it made me feel so much more powerful in the face of in the face of such brutality and such kind of powerlessness that all this whole country of people has, it made me feel really good to be able to give voice to people who can't give voice to themselves. You know, it's like, they don't, they don't speak English or even French, you know, the, the, the idea that someone can tell their story when they literally can't and when the government isn't letting them, um, that was something that that kind of drove me to finish the book every day that I wanted I wanted to be able to give voice to that. Um, you know, and it, it's interesting, like um, someone, <laughs> someone who sort of helped me with the book, who was Mauritanian, read the book, and said, 
Well, you know, there are there are all kinds of slavery, even in your country. And I thought, wow, this is this is this is why this is why I feel so driven to do it, because in that part of the world and and specifically in that country, everyone thinks that this is the will of Allah. Even the slaves themselves think that they are enslaved because that's the will of Allah, you know? And, and so to be able to sort of tell the story from the perspective of someone who can like look at that situation and be like, well, actually, <laughs> maybe not, um, you know, that's, that was empowering. So it was healing as well. So you start off the novel basically you, as you said earlier, you're weaving these stories, but in the beginning, there are two kind of narratives. You see Shannon's story, and she's the woman who lives in Kentucky. She is childless. She gets into a car accident after being on, I think, two dates with this man named Vladimir, who she ends up marrying. And then we see Surya enslaved basically and and we go back and forth a little bit in time so we see her maybe in the beginning we see her in the middle but then we learn later how she got there but what you do with both first chapters of each story is you start with a very deliberate line that's almost the same in the first one it says and what after all to make of a choice and so we're thinking about the idea of choice and then you go on in that one to say that she'd chosen to go to Morocco again with the man she married. And in the second one, you say, and what, after all, to make of a choice with capital C, choice is no more than a baseline that disappears in fierce wind. So I just wanted to ask you about the repeated wording and syntax and kind of rhythm of that. Mm -hmm. And then... Basically, what you were getting at with that. Sure. Well, I think that, you know, what one thing that ties these two women together in some cosmic way before they ever meet, before their stories ever become intertwined, is that they're both very much constrained. And even the choice that Shannon makes to go to Morocco with her husband or even to marry him is really, it's not that much of a choice. She marries him in part because she needs dental insurance, <laughs> you know, and there's, um, there's a lot in her story that, you know, it's it granted it's like um, this American constraint that's kind of a little cushier than the constraint of being enslaved. But, you know, she has no health insurance. She has no dental insurance. Her student loans have defaulted. Um, in a lot of ways, it's sort of this quintessential, like, millennial, you know, Gen, Gen Z experience that we're seeing people struggle with right now in this country. You know, that that choices, um, choice in the United States can sometimes be very illusory. And so they're they're tied together in the sense that though their constraints are incredibly different, I think of them as in some ways um, different sides of a cube, like 
these are the various ways that women get constrained around the world. You know, we make 77 cents on the male dollar. And what does that mean in terms of the, the choices we do and don't have, right? Um, like that means a lot of women have to get married to get dental insurance, you know? Um, what do you do when your student loans have defaulted and they tack on 25%, right? Like, um, so I'm hoping that it's sort of the repeated refrain of choice, the idea of choice, makes the reader sort of interrogate the idea that one of these women is really having such a better time than the other. Um, Cause I, I also, I'm not, um, I realized, especially on the second draft, I was trying to write the book in such a way that we're not necessarily rooting for one woman over the other to, you know, to have this child. And I won't spoil the ending, but that's what the ending has to do with is that central dramatic question of like who should have this child i mean that the plot line that you that you mentioned is that basically shannon who had this horrific car accident marries this guy who she's gone on two dates with because she needs that health insurance and because she's really struggling financially in a lot of ways she has a troubled past, you know, one of the big elements of her character was that she never really felt the love of her parents. And so she herself was kind of an orphan in a way, even though she had parents, they were very absent. She had a a bad accident when she was young. She went to play on her own in some train, empty trains and basically sat in some acid and got burned. And so her life has always been basically at a deficit. Um, because of those those things that she didn't have. And marrying Vlad was like a way out, and love had nothing to do with it. I mean, he was fine enough at first. Um, and so when she couldn't have a baby, I didn't get the sense like it was something that she ever really like longed for, but all of a sudden when it was told that she couldn't have it, it become it became something bigger in her life. And when she was in Morocco with Vlad and saw this little girl who appeared to not have a parent in her mind, I mean, obviously there was a parent, it, it, the, the child existed, it was dressed nicely, it wasn't, you know, hungry or begging, she just decided that she was going to give it this life and took it. And there was something about the way that she absconded with this child that didn't feel like kidnapping. Um, Even though it was, it was maybe part of it was her intention. Maybe part of it was her justification. Maybe part of it was already in the mind of the reader. Like what is her life going to be like in America? So I just wanted to ask you about that idea of, of kidnapping. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Mitzi. I'm so glad to hear you say that because um, to me, it was never a kidnapping, you know? Um, I, th- I think a couple of things. I think, you know, we all, we often, all, all of us have the capacity to do really crazy, terrible things. And, and we do. I mean, there's not a person on the face of the planet who hasn't done something that, that hurt someone, you know, unintentionally, intentionally. But I think a lot of times, not, not, we don't kidnap children, but I think a lot of times we do things 
and we convince ourselves of this, this, and this fact about the action that we're taking, right? That, oh, no, 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 it's actually for the best. And, you know, some of the some of the little cues that maybe it's not, I'm just going to filter them right out because what I have decided is that this action is for the best. And I think that's what she does. She, she sees this child, the child is running free, right? Um, this free range child with no parents anywhere for hours and hours and hours. And the child is so happy um, when Shannon, and the, I don't think this spoils too much, but when Shannon gives her this ice cream and this child is so happy and she's that thinks I want to make this child happy. I want to continue to make this child happy. Um, I actually, I didn't call it a kidnapping. My publisher has called it a kidnapping. So I've gone with that. But to me, I think that she had completely justified that behavior until the point at which it becomes it, you know, when when it becomes more official and they have to actually go to the embassy and like falsify papers. I think at that point it becomes more intentional, but she's so caught up in it that by then, like, this is what we're going to do, you know? And, and, and I tried to offer the reader too the, the, there was a chapter where various people have kind of gone along with it. Um, there were people who sort of saw the kidnapping happen, you know, Shannon's husband has to be complicit in this and take her to the embassy, but they all have their reasons. And they also all have their reasons for sort of filtering the cues out. You know, her, her husband is this dorky guy who's so happy to have her and he'll do anything to keep her. So, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I hope always with my novels to make people complicated enough that we can identify with the quote unquote villainy in them because I think we all have a little bit of it in us as well. And with Surya's early story, as we see her childhood and she she eventually ends up in Morocco, she was able to escape because of an earthquake that basically separated her from everybody. And she got some money from some of the people that had died. And she ended up going to Morocco. And when she lands in Morocco, there's a woman on her bus that kind of takes her in. And it's like benevolent slavery, I guess, compared to what she's had in the past, sort of, where she has a roof over her head. She has a lot more comforts than she's ever had. And ostensibly, she isn't being treated badly. But then she is pregnant from a a past slave owner. And as soon as she is really showing, she gets kicked out. And so you you see her, I guess, getting in progressively nicer slave situations until she Mm -hmm. eventually gets employment and gets on her own. I mean, her life gets a lot worse after that and then um, gets better. And of course you're, you're a woman, you know, prostitution becomes the go-to not by choice, but by nefarious acts of other people. So her trajectory was still amazing because she ended up being independent. That's an, This is another thing that these women ultimately have in common is that they both find sort of self-determination and it's always been important to me to write women characters who do that in the end, you know, um, but particularly 
because I'm a single mom and I've always been a single mom and I'm a single mom very much by choice. I decided really early on that after I got divorced, I told my kids, actually, I said, I will never vary this family structure because we are whole just the way we are, you know, and that has meant making some hard choices, you know, like because I am a woman, because I do make 70 cents on the male dollar, because a lot of things, you know, because the patriarchy is like very much alive and well in the United States, that has meant choosing self-determination in a very intentional way. And so I wanted that for both of these characters as well. You know, when Saria um, finally escapes prostitution, that moment where she gets her own apartment in in this little seaside town, I was like, I was so happy to figure that out. <laughs> you know, I was so happy to figure that out for her. And um, and when the American woman, you know, when she files for divorce and there's this moment, um, I don't even know how to talk about this without, because it is definitely a plot point, but um, there is a moment where she, she has to make a really hard choice about self-determination in the sense that, um, you know, she is still very much without money um, when she gets divorced and she has to make some hard choices too. But in the end, at the end of the day, she, she also chooses to remain herself and true to herself. They do end up going back to Morocco. Well, everyone in the book ends up making some incredibly hard choices. You know, I don't know how I don't know how they made these choices because they were hard choices. But at the end of the day, people stay really true to their beliefs, I think, in this book. Something that you do that's really a craft element, I think, is you play a lot with time that especially in the first half of the book, when you're telling the stories of Shannon and, and Surya, you go back and forth, sometimes just between paragraphs of maybe you're in the moment and then you're going in the past and then you're back in the moment and then you're a little bit forward. You move the story forward. And it seems like a very delicate dance, like a lot to write and, and control, like the orchestra of time, like you're the conductor. I just wondered if you had any comments on it or what you, when I talk about that, what you think. You know, I always tell my students this, that um, there is sort of a storytelling default, right? And it's the default that we kind of got drilled into us as little kids. Like when, when you hear the three little pigs, right? The first little pig builds his house of straw. The second little pig builds his house of sticks. The third little pig bricks his house up and then the big bad wolf comes. But if we tell that story in a different chronology, what if we tell that story when the last little pig is building his house of bricks? Then it becomes a whole different story about this self-righteous pig who is like looking down on his, you know, foolish brothers for building their houses a different way. Um, and when the big bad wolf comes, he is just proven correct, right? Um, I really had to beat myself off of the idea that when I was a younger writer, I sort of, I'd still, I believed that intuitively, but I was like, but I'm, I'm fancy. I'm very fancy. 
and I have these emotional reasons for telling the story out of chronology, you know, and that was hard with this one because the first draft of this novel was actually straight up chronology. And um, I'll, I'll read you a passage later. It starts out in Shannon's childhood, actually, and and in um, not, not only Saria's childhood, but her mother's childhood. Um, and so I had I was kind of at war with myself when I revised the book because the editor suggested that it start with the kidnapping. And I thought, well, but you're not going to sympathize, you won't sympathize at all with the kidnapper, right? And so then I had to go back and sort of rewrite it in a way that unpacked that action and let you in on, um, you know, what was the psychological landscape here? What what happened to Saria? I mean, what happened to Shannon in her childhood? Um, what are the steps that brought her here to taking this strange action, right? Um, but it, it was it was very hard for me because I do tend to try to write stories in straight up chronological order. You know, I, I often think, well, unless there's a good reason not to, um, one shouldn't do it. But I think in this case, um, my editor was right. <laughs> But there was a good reason not to. So I tried that. So overall, I I feel like this is a book about belonging. And belonging is a really interesting word because it's not something that you anyone else can impart on you. Like you can't have someone else tell you you belong and just feel it. It comes from inside. It's different than like inclusion. Like you can be included, but still not feel like a sense of belonging. And you, you start off the book with, with a quote that says people are born. They are a life. They belong to nobody. And this was attributed to David Gibb, who is the father of Kaloran Gibb, who was put up for adoption by Joni Mitchell in 1965 and reunited with her birth mother at the age of 32. And this book, as you go on, is about where do you belong in the world? Who do you belong to literally? Like, who is your true mother? What forces have to be in place to make you feel whole? all the way back to both of the childhoods of, of these women. Yeah. I mean, and I guess like, you know, it's interesting because, um, Surya comes from a culture of nomadism, you know, and she actually, her, her family of origin, her tribe does both kinds of it. Um, and meaning, they do seasonal nomadism. So they go away when the rains go away. They sort of follow the rains so that they can crop. But then they also end up in various parts of the desert at various times. And I think emotionally, what a lot of us have to come to terms with, especially oddly enough in the modern world, there is this parallel with this ancient nomadic world, right? That we, a lot of us, um, in the United States in particular, have been sort of constricted into a life of nomadism, right? We move, we, people don't tend to live where they grew up anymore, which means sort of family relations get 
a little fractured, you know, and you have to decide who your family is. Um, sometimes you even have to decide who your mother is, who your father is, you know, not, not in this radical way of like someone absconded with me to another country. And now I have to make this decision, but, um, in a lot of ways, we we have to make those decisions for ourselves. There's a chapter later in the book that's told from the perspective of the kidnapped child's brain. And the brain sort of adjusts itself around the new reality, um, you know. And later in that chapter, it begins to refer to the, the new parents as her parents. We all have to do that here and there. Um, in the modern age, just the way nomads did. And so I think the book does end up, um, cause it's something that's on my mind a lot too. I, I've moved a lot more than I wanted to in my life. Um, I've moved my kids a lot more than I've ever wanted to move them. And we keep having to, we keep having to understand what belonging is in a new way you know because it's never the same um even the different river you don't step in you know one thing that I had to decide for myself is that home is not home I grew up in Kentucky and for a long time I thought Kentucky was home I ended up actually teaching in Kentucky um from 2018 to 2020 and it wasn't it turned out it wasn't home, you know, it turned out now we live in Michigan and I think of home as wherever my kids are. Um, that's home to me now, you know, home is like sort of loving my children forever and ever. Um, they're home to me, wherever, wherever we are, we're home because they're my home. You mentioned the, the chapter where the young child, uh, Marty, her brain is speaking and it it just felt like this disembodied experience, which is interesting because so much of the book is about the body. I don't know if you've looked at it that way, but you it's like in slavery is exactly that our bodies are 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 caged basically even out in the open, and that Shannon's car accident really maimed her body and she has a scar and then her body can't have children. And so when you have this chapter of her brain speaking, this young child, basically, I mean, it is, it's complete disembodiment. It's like a, a, a totally dispassionate explanation of what's going on around her. It feels more stark because everything is so centered in our physicality. I, I had hoped that it would be a way of sort of, um, actually, it, in many ways, it was a simple kind of, it was an answer to a plot question that I had struggled with, which is like, how does, how come this kid can't speak Arabic? And how can, how come this kid isn't like running through the streets saying, this is not my mother, this is not my father. And it's, because the brain, you know, the brain does wonderful things for us and the brain is very plastic and malleable. And so her brain sort of helps her make sense of a really nonsensical situation. Another thing I noticed in, in the book, and I'm curious about your lived experience there, is was slavery in Mauritania um, and however it moves towards Morocco, some of those sentiments about that based on the darkness of people's skin. You had mentioned caste. 
Yes, absolutely. And and then if, if I was indicting anything in the book, um, I hope that that comes through loud and clear because the racism and xenophobia that Surya experiences when she gets to Morocco is just a continuation of that caste-based slavery and, and this idea that permeates a lot of the Arab world that... Um, you know, your worth is based on your skin color. And, and certainly that's a, that's a lot of the reason that when we go to Morocco, we no longer go to the Northern part of Morocco because in Marrakesh and Point South, um, the mentality is much less dominated by that sentiment. When, when we go to, you know, Fez or Rabat, we experience a lot of racism and xenophobia, even as Americans, um, you know, and it's, um, <laughs> it can really ruin your day. So I just stopped going up there, you know, but it's, it's always been interesting to me because Morocco is a place and Mauritania is a place too, where there is a lot of racial diversity, like a lot, you know, and there are people within the same family even who are just completely different skin colors, but there is still so much racism and it's so untroubled and unexamined. Um, it's astonishing, you know, but, but people coexist somehow. Um, it's just to my sensibility, American sensibility, hard often to like watch, you know, there's a, there's a picture in one of the, one of the magazines I was using to do my research of this slave. Um, and she's like, you know, happily cooking for this family and she's very dark skinned. And of course they're very light skinned and it's, and she has just had this most untroubled look on her face. And I'm like, <laughs> okay everybody's fine with this. I don't know. <laughs> you know, because you've spent so much time in there, it was, um, I'm sure easier for you to conjure up what it was like, but that you just mentioned, um, a magazine picture. So I was wondering if you use a lot of visual resources for you to create your art. I did. Um, especially for the Mauritanian chapters I had, um, because my time in the desert, it, you know, I there's no denying it was a, it was very much a kind of Westerner with money time in the desert, you know. So to really understand how people lived and, um, you know, what is the pro like I yes I've hauled water out of a well, but I I've not had to transport it three miles, you know. So how do people do that? How do they? live really with no generator, no electricity whatsoever. I turned to a lot of um, not only texts, but magazines, you know, and like firsthand accounts um, from people who'd been there in, in English. So I did, I did a lot of that. Um, but fortunately, there's quite a bit of it out there. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So I am going to read the very first paragraph of Jazz, actually, um, by Toni Morrison. I know that woman. She used to live with a flock of birds on Lenox Avenue. Know her husband, too. He fell for an 18-year-old girl with one of those deep-down spooky loves that made him so sad and happy he shot her just to keep the feeling going. When the woman, her name is Violet, went to the funeral to see the girl and to cut her dead face, they threw her to the floor and out the church. 
She ran then through all that snow. And when she got back to her apartment, she took the birds from their cages and set them out the windows to freeze or fly, including the parrot that said, I love you. So I chose that passage because it tells you every single thing that's going to happen in the novel. Actually, there's not one extra plot point that happens. It's all in that paragraph. You get the who, you get the what, um, you get the where, you get the when. What you don't get is the why or the how, and it's that why or the how and the how that I think is the novelist's sort of chief aim, you know? And so a lot of times um, I think we have this instinct to withhold and withhold information and withhold when really the the there's a lot more to be gained through revelation. Um, and there's a lot, particularly when you're talking about the what, the when and the where, um, there's a lot to be gained in not withholding that information. Um, so it, it, it has always inspired me to just dump my characters into the pot, like boiling, you know, this is, this is the inciting incident right here. Can you read a passage you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Sure. This is the beginning of Mother Country, the first draft of it. Um, it wasn't even called Mother Country at this point. It was called Kif, which is which is Moroccan weed. Um, prologue 1982. It was as though her mother couldn't count. The letters from Cienfuegos had been coming less and less frequently, yet still her mother told her brother Leon when he whined that their father would be writing again on the first of the month. The first year and a half after he was deported, Felix Castro had, in fact, sent a monthly envelope, including two handwritten pages asking his children about their school activities and wishing them love, a notice of a wire transfer in the amount of 200 American dollars, and half a dozen of the square photographs with the rounded edges that he developed from his little brownie camera. Neither Leon nor her mother had asked out loud who took the photo that had come with the letter dated November 2, 1981, a portrait of their father at dusk on the beach, smiling languidly and philosophically, his black shirt rippled by wind, shiny black shoes soft on his feet and an open can of Miyabi in his hand. Her father had moved on, Kathy intuited, from the three open buttons of his shirt, but he was going to keep it to himself. There were things one just did not enclose in an envelope. That was kind of when the novel was in straight up chronological order. And that's, in fact, the very first thing that happened. Um, but on further drafts, it just it was not the emotional place to start the novel, I decided, um, because actually it's not the it's not the what or the who or the when or the where. It's just straight up chronology. So now the novel actually begins with the absconding of the child. Where do you write? I actually write at home. Um, I kind of seal myself up in a room with some tea and my laptop. And um, I... <laughs> I I play Sirius XM. Sometimes I play Spa. Sometimes I play Symphony. But I always write with no music, with no words, and tea. The tea is essential. <laughs> what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? 
That's a good question. I'm I'm trying to work on that. Um, I you know when my hobby became my job that. <laughs> <laughs> that's so there was a void um so now I play piano every once in a while and I'm trying to really really do that more um because yeah now I don't have a hobby so <laughs> who do you show your work to first to get feedback so um I have a really good friend named James who we met at a writing residence in New Mexico a long time ago um and he is now the person, James Short, who sees my writing before anyone else does. Um, and I think he, I'm also his alpha reader. Um, so we we very much trust each other with, with our words. Um, and it's really nice to have a writing comrade like that. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, you know, I'm probably in the minority of one, but... I decided early on that I will not celebrate success too hard because then I have to be dejected about failure. So when I sold my first novel, I got off the phone and changed my kid's diaper and went right back to work um, writing, you know, because <laughs> I didn't want to, I've always felt like if I do that 50 yard dance, 50 yard line dance, then when the rejections come, I'll get upset about it. So I like, I, I feel like I look at it as like, this was, this was my day's work today. Sometimes it's not successful, but I'm still going to keep working. And what is your favorite word? Uh, so this is a tricky question because it has two pronunciations. The British pronunciation is chthonic. Um, the American pronunciation is thonic. And what it is, it, it means of the underworld. And I love it because, first of all, it's such an unusual word. I love the sound of it. But I love this idea that, you know, sometimes we think of the underworld as sort of, you know, the river sticks, Hades, whatever. But really... We all go there often. I think every winter, in a lot of ways, a lot of us go chthonic. You know, um, Michigan is still chthonic right now, <laughs> you know, but it's nice. I love the the idea of people just sort of shutting down and, and going down there and then reemerging later with new understandings. So I just, I love that word. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm so appreciative. Thank you, Mitzi. It was so wonderful to speak with you. Thank you for having me on. If you liked today's show with Jacinda Townsend, author of the novel Mother Country, check out my interview with Bernice McFadden. We discussed her novel Praise Song for the Butterflies, which tells the story of a nine-year-old girl who lives in West Africa and gets sold into slavery. We talked about modeling her character after the women she grew up with, the difference between bad luck and superstition, and visiting Ghana and seeing where thousands of Africans were sent as slaves to America, the Caribbean, and South America. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. 
Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Ada Limon, Jeffrey Yang, and Lawrence Jackson. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.